Good evening, everybody. Welcome to the LSE. Welcome to this Forum for European Philosophy public lecture. I'm Simon Glendening, and I'm delighted to welcome back to the LSE an old friend of the Forum for European Philosophy, Alan de Botton. He's going to be talking tonight about his new book, uh, which is called Religion for Atheists. And um, he's going to be signing the book on stage afterwards. So uh, if you want to get a copy or have already got a copy, come back and uh, he'll be about there where he can sign it. Um, Alan's background is in philosophy, and so it's very interesting that he's turning here to religion. Um, the two have a strange relationship and a strange connection. Um, philosophy, uh, often thought of as uh, the love of wisdom, and religion, at least in certain religions, understands itself as the wisdom of love. And one should think that there, there ought to be some kind of happy marriage between those two. Uh, but when the philosopher is an atheist, uh, things can get a bit rough, as I'm sure you know. Atheists writing on religion, well, it's usually very depressing. On the one hand, they don't want to know anything about religion, and on the other hand, they think they know everything about it. <laughs> and what they know is that religious beliefs and religious practices are built on myth, and superstition which no one can rationally believe and which should be consigned to the dustbin of history, should wither on the vine of science and progress. Well, it's not very edify edifying and one could hope for something better. Well, I think that that's what Alain de Botton has tried to do in his latest book, Religion for Atheists. Now, it would not be fair to say that Alan writes self-help books, but his previous works, for example, How Proust Can Change Your Life, The Consolations of Philosophy, The Art of Travel, Essays in Love, Status Anxiety, The Architecture of Happiness, The Pleasures and Sorrows of Work, as well as his own work for the School of Life, there is an emphasis throughout here, throughout all of this, on what one can call moral education. But it's moral education not as a sort of moralizing about right doctrines, but it's something, I think, in reading his work, something more like an effort to get us to develop our sensibility, a moral sensibility, to become, for example, a more refined reader or a more refined tourist or partner or whatever it is. There's a, there's a classic reference here, a classical reference. There was literae humaniores, the idea of more refined writings. And I think that this is a tradition that Alan is part of. And I think one of the things that Alan is trying to teach in his new book is about becoming a more refined atheist. And that, in his view, means opening oneself to learning something from religion and not thinking that it only has something to learn from you. Now one thing to mention about Alan's way, Alan's way of getting us thinking anew about religion is the deployment in his work of a very old and very classical literary form, the aphorism. 
One reviewer has already pointed out, in fact, that the new book, Religion for Atheists, is a work that's partly composed of aphorisms and that the work of convincing the reader is done not so much with, as it were, argument or, or the, those sort of trappings of argument, but through the compelling character of aphorism. Now, it's interesting in itself that, but uh, for, um, I can't resist ra raising the fact or asking you, who here follows Alain on Twitter? Quite a few of you, and you will know that Alan tweets aphorisms. <laughs> the, the genre seems almost produced for him, 140 characters limit in which you've got, you've got to say something, and Alan is tweeting aphorisms, lots of them, quite extraordinary. It's a sort of life commentary at one remove, so they're about his life, but then they, they, they're thrown out to us as something for, for everybody and not just a report on his life. And in the last week, for example, which seemed to me not an unusual week, he tweeted nearly 50 aphorisms. Now, many are very funny. I'll just give you one. <laughs> Sorry about this. Getting older is a version of looking tired that any amount of sleep doesn't overcome. <laughs> I'm saving one for the end, but here's one more. Two hours ago. <laughs> with age, I think there's a theme here, no. With, <laughs> with age, you realize certain things just can't be fixed and start to take frivolity seriously. And then finally, to become a writer means learning to forgive yourself the horrors of the first draft, and the second, and the third. <laughs> so, over to you. Alan de Bottle, thank you. Well, thank you so much for that um, introduction. If I'd known that you'd be reading these tweets, I would um, have deleted them at once, but there we are. Um, there's always something slightly embarrassing, actually, when you meet someone and they go, I follow you on Twitter. I always start to blush. And I think the reason is that um, I imagine when I do it that no one's listening. It's a sort of weird medium that, um, yeah, anyway, and so it seems odd when... Uh, when someone's in on the conversation. So what I want to talk to you to tonight is uh, about is, is my new book, and um, it's, it is really a reaction against a version of, of atheism that suggests not just that believing in God is um, a, a mistake, but also that it's ridiculous um, and that it's a sign of, of immaturity uh, of, of all kinds. Um, I'm of the view that we don't, very few of us are ever in a position to choose where we stand on religion. It's something that we arrive at through processes that are not really that conscious. Um, and so it seems particularly peculiar um, of either side in the religious divide to, to try and convert the other by argument, um, because I think these things are, on the whole, um, not capable of, of being changed merely by argument, because they weren't created by, uh, by argument. Um, so. I'm writing for somebody who um, is an atheist, I, I write as an atheist, um, as a lifelong atheist, someone who was never traumatized by religion, as so many have been, someone who enjoyed the benefits of 
uh, a secular society. And yet, nevertheless, someone who um, started to appreciate at a certain point, my, sort of my late 20s or so, um, that there were many things that religions got up to which were really very interesting. Sometimes they were beautiful, sometimes they were wise, sometimes they were weird, but uh, interesting all the time. And you know, it was as varied as Bach's cantatas, Christmas carols, uh, Zen Buddhist temples, or traditions of gravel raking, or calligraphy. Um, all, all kinds of things got me thinking. And, um, I became more and more impressed, but slightly guilty. I, I always felt, am I, is, is it allowed to, to do this, to take an interest uh, in this uh, area? And I think for many of us, there's an uncomfortable feeling of, of choice. Either you subscribe to um, a, a religion or, or you get off its patch. Um, you know, some, when I was writing this book, my, my book looks um, at three uh, major religions, um, Christianity, Judaism, and Buddhism. And, um, you know, people, just when I was describing the project, people said, well, you know, isn't that a little bit of a pick-and-mix approach? And you hear a lot of that, that term, pick-and-mix. And I think people are onto something. Really what they're talking about is commitment. And they, there's an implicit requirement to be committed to a discipline or a, a, a particular creed. But if you start to see religions as essentially cultural products rather than the products of divine revelation, um, the demand for consistent commitment comes to seem a little bit more peculiar. Um, imagine if we applied this method to other areas of culture. If, let's imagine you said, you know, you really enjoyed the essays of Virginia Woolf, and someone said, well, I hope you're reading everything in Virginia Woolf, including, you know, the diaries and uh, the novels. And you said, well, no, I'm just, you know, I'm mixing that because I'm reading Joyce next week. And someone accused you of um, picking, picking and mixing. Um, that wouldn't make much sense. We're used to picking and mixing when it comes to literature, to all the arts, really, all the humanities. Um, and so it seems to me that we should allow for a similarly um, uh, similar approach when it comes uh, to, uh, uh, to, to religion. So unashamedly, that's what I'm, uh, I'm, I'm up to. Um, so what I want to do tonight is just talk you through some of the areas that I've found very interesting in religion that have provoked me to, um, uh, to think really about some of the gaps that secular society has. You know, it's my view that we've secularized badly in certain areas. And a lot of this has to do with the history of the sort of people who advance the argument for secularization. Um, a lot of um, uh, babies were thrown out with the bathwater, and um, I'm trying to rescue a few of them. So let me talk to you about a, a, a few that I think are interesting. First is in the area of education. Now, education is absolutely central to secular society. When we hear about how we're going to make a better world, um, education is right at the top of the list, huge expectations. Now, why is education important? At one level, the sort of primary level, it's going to give us the technical skills to succeed in a complex industrial society. But there's an underlying grander ambition behind education that sometimes comes out at graduation ceremonies and, and such like, when people start to say that really the point of education is to make you fully human, to make you into a true citizen, um, a, a, an adult and mature person. Um, now, I very much like that claim. It's a vision of education that I really subscribe to. And it, it starts to come in um, in its modern form in the 19th century. In the UK, church attendance starts to fall off a cliff in about the middle of the 19th century. And um, people start to get rather anxious. A certain kind of person who belongs to what we would nowadays call the chattering classes starts to worry, where are people in the UK going to get their sources of consolation, um, of morality, of guidance? And a small group, people I'm thinking of people like Matthew Arnold or John Stuart Mill, start to argue that there is a replacement 
for, um, uh, for, for Christianity. Um, and that replacement is culture, the humanities, what we would now call the humanities. In other words, the great uh, ambition of the mid-19th century um, uh, in the minds of some is to replace scripture uh, with culture. Um, and this is a project that really interests me. Um, and that, um, you know, the, the thought is you can replace the uh, content, but keep the same ambition. So you can still go to culture for the things that you would, would have gone to religion for. So um, an ethical framework, a uh, source of guidance, parables, um, uh, consolation, etc. These things are available in works of, of, of culture. Um, and so the, the retreat from religion may be less traumatic. That was, that was the 19th century uh, argument. Now, we've completely forgotten it nowadays. Apart from the odd moment at a graduation ceremony, basically we've forgotten it. I mean, if you showed up at the LSE and said, you know, I've come to study the humanities because I, I'm looking for consolation, I want to learn how to live and later how to die, um, you would be shown, uh, you know, the way to um, a mental health clinic. It's simply not what modern humanities education is assumed to be, uh, to, to be about. There's a great suspicion of that word relevance, great doubt about it, um, and there's an underlying, really, assumption about how human beings are constituted. The idea is as a rational adult does not need crutches, what might be described as crutches. We don't need uh, these external sources of, of, of assistance, and it's no job of the humanities to, uh, to be doing that. Now, um, I think that's a pity, and what's interesting when you look at religions is that religions explicitly um, think that we are on the verge of collapse. Um, all religions see us as incredibly fragile. All religions use that word child in describing their adherents at various points. Um, and the view is there that we need guidance. We urgently need guidance. And that's what religions are about. Um, throughout the day, in the major moments of your life and coming up to death, you need um, active assistance in the business of living. Uh, and, and that's what religion set out to, to provide. Um, I think it's a wonderful ambition. It's, it's, it does have its secular equivalents, and you find a lot of this going on in classical philosophy, but it disappears from the ambition of the modern uh, interpretation of the, of the humanities. Um, to, imagine the, the, the dominant mode of imparting um, uh, uh, news to followers. Um, you know, the modern secular world delivers lectures um, religions deliver sermons. What's the difference between a, a lecture and a, and a sermon? Well, a lecture is, is, is sharing uh, a, an, an argument, and a sermon is trying to change your life and perhaps save it. Um, and, and that really shows the difference in ambition. Um, and uh, it, it's my feeling that the humanities do retain this power to guide and console and um, create an ethical uh, framework, but that we're not using it like this. We're not using culture religiously enough. And part of the reason why we're not doing so is because um, of a sense that it's slightly too religious. So you sometimes get this response. People say, well, wouldn't that be turning culture into a religion? And my sense is that though there is a slippery slope, um, we can certainly hang in the middle of it without danger of falling down it. So anyway, we can perhaps explore that in a, in a minute. But anyway, that's the, that's the area that I'm interested in in relation to education, as it were, the content of education. There's also something interesting in terms of the way that religions deliver education. The delivery of education is fascinating uh, to me. Um, Religions seem to be very aware that we are forgetful creatures. Um, the, the, the Greeks have this wonderful term, akrasia, weakness of will. Um, the idea that you might know something, 
uh, intellectually, but your will is too weak or intermittent um, to make that knowledge effective in your life and in the world. And um, so in this understanding, you need something to bolster you. You need some reminders um, to make what you want and what you feel is true active. Um, and religions seem very aware of this tendency to a crazier, which is why most religions have repetition right at their core. Um, you know, if you're a Catholic, it's assumed that something you've said to yourself at nine o'clock in the morning will be forgotten by lunchtime, and you need to top up again in the evening. So constant cycles of uh, uh, repetition. 12, 18 times a day, you might be on your knees repeating things. We don't do this. We associate novelty um, uh, with, with goodness and repetition with sterility. We expect the things that will save us to be things from the new, um, and of course medicine and technology are the, the prime examples of this. We literally expect a, a, a new discovery to, to rescue us, and religions are, are set against that um, uh, structurally. The other thing that religions are very interested in doing is, is making sure that we have constant appointments with important ideas. Um, the secular world tends to leave it rather vague as to when we will meet with the important ideas that we need to sustain us. Uh, religions take no such chances, which is why they all have calendars, um, and calendars that make sure that every single day has um, a purpose to it, an inner purpose, a spiritual, if you like, psychological uh, purpose. So, you know, on the 31st of March, you will be thinking of Saint Jerome as a Catholic and his virtues of goodness and humility and whatever else it is. And we're well used in the secular world to structuring our diaries and making appointments with um, you know, tax inspectors, etc. But um, that's the diary of capitalism, whereas uh, uh, religions have a, a, a diary of the soul um, and they're trying to structure experiences so we will meet them at the right time. Um, and this flies in the face of the romantic view under, in, in which we live, which is to say, if an idea is important, I'll meet with it, and it will be better to meet it spontaneously than meet it under some kind of communal guidance which will corrupt my relationship with the idea. Um, I've got sympathy for both points of view, but increasingly I've got sympathy for the religious point of view because uh, I think the danger of these authentic, spontaneous experiences is they don't happen. Um, so we might need to make a, 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 a space in the, in the diary for them. So, I mean, take, you know, religions have got some fascinating rituals. You know, that word ritual. Um, I spend some time thinking about ritual in my book. And ritual, a ritual seems to me to be a communal um, attempt to get at certain psychological uh, uh, truths or insights or movements um, that, that are normally left free form, left up to the individual in, uh, the, uh, uh, the, in the secular world. Take, take the moon. Um, you know, we sometimes drive down the motorway and look at the moon in, in, in the sky, and um, it has all sorts of promises to us. It makes all sorts of promises about perspective and about calm for our souls, etc. And we say, well, you know, we should look at the moon a bit more and be nice to reflect on it. But you don't, because you just don't. We, none of us really spend much time looking at the moon uh, these days. So, um, but however, if you're a, a Zen Buddhist, in the middle of September, you will be ordered out of your house and made to stand on a canonical platform for the festival of Tsukimi, a ritual uh, where you, you look up at the moon, read some poetry uh, and about the brevity and fragility of life and, and eat some rice cakes. Um, and so that moment of moon viewing is structured. It's there. Um, you won't be able to get past it. And, and all religions have these lovely one in uh, Judaism called the Birkat Hot, where at the blossoming of the first uh, 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 trees, um, you'll go out with a rabbi and read some poems uh, in honor of the beauty of, of nature. You know, it's a little bit like Wordsworth, except the difference is that there is no calendar to which Wordsworth is attached. It's an inner, spontaneous calendar so it gets lost. So I'm intrigued by uh, this, um, this application of structure to the inner life. I think it's something that has all sorts of um, uh, suggestive uh, connotations for, for us now. Um, 
The other thing that religions do when they uh, get round to education is that they remember that oratory is absolutely central to um, uh, the success of a message. Uh, again, this is something we're very bad at doing. We tend to think that um, what will make an argument uh, convincing is its impeccable logic, uh, and we forget that uh, some of it, uh, it also has to do with how it's delivered. Um, indeed, there's a suspicion of rhetoric um, uh, with a view that we might be convinced into believing something we, we shouldn't believe simply because it's been delivered nicely. And though I accept that, there's also uh, a, a view that um, something that should be believed isn't going to be believed because it's delivered uh, so badly. Um, so, you know, if you look at uh, all religions, they have traditions of oratory. In the, uh, in the Christian tradition, it's probably the Pentecostalists of the American South that do this best. If you go and listen to them, um, extraordinary. I, 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 I went around the American South listening to them, and, you know, you, you, you get moments when the priest is, is saying something, and the congregation will, every few paragraphs, um, stand up. Members, different members will stand up and say, uh, you know, amen, amen, amen. And uh, if there's a really rousing point, they'll all break into clapping and go, uh, you know, thank you, Jesus, thank you, Savior, thank you, Christ. And there'll be a kind of sort of ecstatic feeling. And, um, you know, I, I can't help but think of my own education and uh, uh, my own lectures that I attended and try, <laughs> try and imagine if, you know, there were some really good lecturers and sometimes would stand up and go, you know, thank you, Machiavelli, thank you, Montaigne, thank you, Shakespeare, and really get a, a rousing call. But it doesn't happen. It doesn't happen. We're not, we're not allowed to be excited. Um, that's, that would be wrong. Um, the other thing that religions are constantly aware of is that we are embodied creatures. We have bodies and we have minds and uh, we are chemical propositions. And so if you're trying to get through to people, you have to remember that at all times. You have to involve the whole uh, uh, self. Um, and that means using things like food, uh, light, color, um, uh, spaces, sounds, etc. These are all central things to, uh, uh, to, to religions. Um, you know, charming uh, rituals like the Zen Buddhist tea ceremony, um, what you're doing there is uh, imbibing a, a beverage um, that is supporting a philosophical lesson about you know, the fragility of life. Um, and that could be delivered as an essay, but it's delivered as an essay slash tea party. Um, and I think there's something very nice in that because it's been very well chosen. There is a subtle sympathy between warm tea and, uh, and, and, and the lessons. And um, so it's a delightful ritual. You know, there are similar things in, in, say, in Judaism. Judaism talks a lot about forgiveness and cleansing and making a new start. And these are all nice themes. But uh, Judaism takes care that it, it embodies these themes. So um, Orthodox Jewish communities will all have a mikveh uh, at the heart of them. Uh, a mikveh is a ritual bath uh, where um, members will go and uh, purify themselves every Friday and say prayers and, um, and look into themselves and make certain confessions, etc., while dousing themselves in, in water. And, you know, we have an echo of that in secular life when we have a bath and um, we're aware that the bath helps certain inner processes, but it's very much left up to chance. Um, and, and that's interests me, the how, how religions rescue things that might be left up to, uh, uh, to chance and, and, and make sure that they don't fall through the cracks. Um, the other area that uh, uh, religions are, are very in, involved in is art. Now, in the secular world, we're, we think we've got art pretty much covered. Um, huge amounts of resources go into uh, the world of art. And it, you know, sometimes here it's said that um, it's museums that are our new cathedrals. So you know, everything's fine. Um, when you start looking at religions, um, one possible response is to feel that perhaps we haven't worked everything out about our relationship to art and that there are, there's a potential um, of art to have more of a therapeutic, instrumental uh, effect on our lives um, that we're not taking up. Um, well, really because of two 
intellectual ideas that are in the background of our, our responses to art. Um, the first one is that very ambiguous but rather troublesome idea that crops up in the 19th century that um, art should be for art's sake, that the aesthetic is a realm unto itself, um, that artists should not be accountable or responsible to power, um, and the problem with that statement is that it's so flexible um, and it can be interpreted in so many ways. And at its worst, it suggests that art shouldn't want anything of the world. Um, and that seems to me to be a, a destructive and almost nihilistic approach that, um, that, that, that really undermines the capacity of art to make a difference. I don't think, I don't think any great artist has ever thought that, but it, it somehow seems that that's the most respectable approach uh, to art. The other thing uh, that has happened is the veneration of ambiguity, um, which is such a key part of modernism. The modernist movement in, in the arts um, is all about uh, creating uh, works of great complexity whose meaning cannot readily be explained. And the idea is that the, the more interesting and uh, subtle and uh, uh, accomplished a work of art, the harder it will be to pin its meaning down. Um, so greatness becomes associated, sometimes fatally, with ambiguity, um, which explains how museum catalogues are written these days. And, and that quintessential, almost you know, cliched, comedic um, response that you might feel on emerging from the contemporary art gallery, which is, what did that mean? Um, and it's not just you, it's all of us. And, and the reason we ask ourselves, what did that mean, is um, that it's never quite been explained to us. And, and because of a feeling that if it were to be explained too clearly, it might undermine the capacity of the work of art to, to function. Now, what's interesting is that religions start from a completely different place, so different. And um, it's worth just always bearing that in mind. Um, religions start from the view that art has a very simple function. It's a didactic function. Um, art should remind you of what is good. Uh, and should warn you about what is bad. Uh, in other words, it has an explicitly moral uh, a purpose, um, and that explains its role and its, its veneration. Um, the, the underlying assumption is that there are many things that we want to do, should do, could do, um, that we forget because the ideas are not vivid enough in our imaginations, and part of the task of art is to kind of render our commitments more vivid to us so that we can remember what we actually love but have sort of slightly forgotten we loved. Um, you know, Hegel famously describes art as the sensuous presentation of ideas. Um, and Hegel argues that we need ideas to be presented to us sensuously or sensorily um, because we are creatures of senses um, and, uh, and our intellects uh, rely on these senses being awakened at key moments. And if they're not, um, then intellectual positions will harden and eventually lose their hold on, uh, on us. Um, so, so a lot of art uh, uh, produced by, by religions can be interpreted through that lens. I mean, if you, if you take a, a Rembrandt painting like uh, Christ Crossing the Sea of Galilee, for those of you who know it, it's, it's in a way a painting about courage. It's, it, you know, if you wanted to draw a very simple moral, it's telling you, uh, try to be courageous like Christ was courageous. Um, it's a picture of edification. Um, and, uh, and the assumption there is we all want to be courageous, but we kind of, we've forgotten what it's like. We've forgotten why it's important. And this painting will make that courage speak to us. It'll bring it back, uh, back to life. Um, and uh, 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 I think that it's very possible to say that what that Rembrandt picture is about. Um, it's a very accomplished, complex work of art as a technical creation. All sorts of effects are being used. But if you, if you ask what is its moral, it's very simple moral. Uh, and a lot of Christian art certainly has extremely simple 
uh, as simple morals. Um, but that doesn't undermine the quality of these works as works of, of, of art. Um, so it's a form of propaganda, if you like, a religious artist propaganda. We're very scared of that word. Again, slippery slope, at the bottom of which always lies uh, Stalin and Hitler. Um, but <laughs> it doesn't have to be uh, that way necessarily, um, because really what we're talking about is art as advocacy for certain concepts. And um, religions believe that you need to have artists um, working with you and for you because you're not going to get there otherwise. So imagine what's the secular equivalent of all this. Well, the secular equivalent of this is that the LSE philosophy department um, is in touch with, you know, um, uh, Tracy Emin and Grayson Perry and, um, you know, others um, to get their message across. So there isn't this divorce, that there is a, a, a seamless connection between the best ideas of, of, of our society imagine if they came from the LSE philosophy department. Um, sometimes they do. Um, but seamless uh, uh, connection between uh, thinking and uh, the representation of that thinking. A very unusual idea. I mean, you know, throughout the history of religious art, it was not expected that the artists would have the ideas. The ideas came from somebody else. The point of the task of the artist was to render these ideas vivid. Um, that was the task. Uh, and uh, again, we nowadays, as a romantic worldview, is the artist comes up with the ideas, uh, won't necessarily explain those ideas, but part of the artist's genius is coming up with the idea. Um, but you know, religions, history of religion suggests, well, imagine if it was slightly different. Imagine if actually that wasn't the point, um, and it was, it was actually the execution of the idea, the rendering of that idea in, in a vivid form that was really the thing that we wanted to praise. Um, that would be rather interesting. Same holds true for architecture. You know, one of the things that people who don't uh, uh, believe often feel when they walk into a uh, religious building is... Um, this is stunning. Um, pity I'm not part of this uh, religion, but you know, it's nice as a tourist. Um, uh, to which my answer is, the buildings put up by religions are, are trying to do a very uh, simple thing. What they're trying to do is to render the ideas um, uh, that, are, that, that uh, justify them uh, vivid, so that when you um, walk into a cathedral or whatever, it will make certain concepts more convincing. Now, we haven't stopped having concepts in the contemporary world. Uh, we've stopped having beliefs. But so long as we have concepts, there is surely a continuing role for an architecture that makes these concepts uh, vivid and exciting and, 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 and interesting. Um, okay, I'm going to talk about a few other things before we come on to uh, questions. But one of the things uh, that I want to think about now is um, the idea of institutions. Um, and the interesting thing about religions, and we sometimes forget this, is that they are not just arguments, they are not just propositions, they are institutions. Um, organized religions, you know, they are organized. Um, and uh, particularly atheist attacks on religion sometimes seem to forget this. Um, they seem to believe that their opponent is, is essentially a, an argument um, rather than a body that sings Christmas carols and, you know, um, has tea parties and uh, invests in certain kinds of clothes and music and pilgrimages and all the rest of it. Um, and, and it's just extremely important to bear that in mind because if, you want, if we want to create an effective secular world, um, we might have to go beyond merely using arguments um, and we might have to branch out into other uh, areas of activity. You know, the, it, in the modern world, if you're in the secular world, if you're involved in the inner life, the soul side of, 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 of man, if you like, um, you're on the whole a lone practitioner. You know, you're, you're a poet, you're a novelist, uh, you're a psychotherapist, um, you're, you're on your own, you're not part of a, a corporate uh, uh, body. And, and the idea there is 
the individual is pure, but the institution is corrupt. Um, and it's a very strong kind of presumption that we have. Religions, uh, organized religions, are not uh, like this. They start from the view that institutions have a whole host of advantages over individual practitioners. Um, for a start, they can gather money. Uh, they can pool the intelligence of a variety of people. They can create consistency across time and space. Um, they, they will be branded. You know, the, the other thing, I mean, people always go, oh, religions, you know, they're, they're great at branding. Um, and, of course, that very modern word, it, it was religions that first created this idea of consistency between um, uh, activities that might seem unrelated, uh, but through the use of certain visual symbols would be seen to be part, to belong to part of a kind of holistic uh, uh, worldview. Um, the closest we've got to these sorts of bodies are, are multinational corporations. Um, and there's lots in common with how a multinational corporation works and how a, a religion works. Um, I suppose, I mean, part of the problem, of course, of the multinational corporation is that it's not involved in the sole space at all. It's involved in the selling pizzas or shoe space. Um, so what we've got is, on the one hand, you know, religions uh, uh, that, uh, that um, operate quite like corporations and then corporations in the secular world uh, that, that their managerial structure is quite akin to religions um, and yet they're involved in very different sorts of things. Um, and, uh, and then you've got these, this other group of artists, psychotherapists, um, uh, etc., poets, um, who are slightly floating free uh, outside of, of this body, and so not being very effective in many ways. Um, and I think it's, it's a crude but sort of important point to, 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 to point out that um, the collective has advantages, and the history of religions points that out to us. Of course, there are dangers as well, um, but the sense that a book, for example, can achieve everything is one of the great myths of the modern world. You know, the publishers' catalogues are full of books by lone authors who are essentially trying to rearrange the world, um, but who are not involving themselves in any corporate, I mean that in, in a loose sense, corporate attempts to, to do that. And that intrigues me. It interests me as a lone writer in his bedroom. Um, more on that later. Um, the other thing, okay, the other thing religions tend to be quite good at doing is, is community. And... Um, People, a lot of people said to me, well, what about Facebook? And, uh, you know, don't we do that too? What about football in the pub, etc.? Of course, there are modern uh, equivalents to this, but I think they're all, in some ways, importantly different. Um, a lot of social media, for example, groups people by interest. It says, you know, you're interested in ice hockey, and you know, that person is too, so you come together. It draws people through, um, through things they're, they're already quite interested in together. Um, and uh, uh, I think that's slightly different from what religions are, are doing, because what, what religions are doing often is gathering a group of strangers who will really have nothing in common with one another other than their subscription to the religion. Um, and the, the struggle, uh, which in some versions of Christianity is, is a kind of spiritual struggle, is to recognize the humanity in someone who doesn't seem, um, who has none of the familiar markers of um, uh, a friend, uh, but yet in whom you can make that journey towards friendship. And that's an intriguing uh, uh, mission, really, um, and something that religions encourage us on. You, you could almost say that what religions are doing, and it's a very basic move, is introducing us to one another. Now, you know, the, the, a modern city like London is full of places where there are lots of people together like this tonight. Um, but unless I do something striking, which I don't think I'm going to do, but I could do it, um, <laughs> you're not going to talk to each other. Um, uh, and you will leave. You will have had a communal experience without any uh, community. 
Um, and that's a quintessential modern experience. Um, you know, you are spectators of me, um, but you not yourselves bonded together. Um, what religions do is, is more interesting. What, what, what they try and do, it's, it's like at a party. You know, at a party, everyone's sort of standing like this and uh, not having a good time until a host comes along and says, you know, you meet so-and-so and you meet so-and-so. And the sociability that is there beneath the surface gets a chance to express itself. Um, but unless there's a host, it doesn't work. In other words, community need hosts. Um, and that's what religions are often doing. It's a very simple function. I'm not going to do it now, but if I asked everyone, if, I did it the other day somewhere, and um, took a long time. It was actually rather touching because it really worked. It worked so, it was so simple and yet so easy. Uh, if I said, you know, now introduce yourselves to the person on your right and your left for three, two minutes, um, it would completely transform your experience of this evening. Um, and, uh, and yet we don't do this. It's incredibly simple. There's nothing intellectually complex, but that's what religions are doing constantly, and that's what, weirdly, the modern world is still struggling uh, to do, to introduce us to, uh, uh, to one another. Anyway, I, I, I've waffled on a lot, but I, what I really want to conclude with is, is the thought that in many, many different areas of life, there are things that you can look at within religion, um, confident, if you're an atheist, that you will remain an atheist. There's no, no need to fear. And, 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 of course, not forgetting the Inquisition and paedophile priests and all the terrible things that religions have done, uh, because often there's a worry if I show any interest or sympathy towards religions, I might be losing my sharp eye on their bad sides. And I think that doesn't have to be the case. But um, if, one, uh, you know, if one looks in a range of areas, there are things, for all, there are things that can be applied to all sorts of situations. You know, as I say, if you're in education, there are things to be learned. If you're in the travel industry, you know, look at pilgrimages. Uh, if you're in the art world, look deeply at the relationship of um, uh, religions to uh, their, their works of art. Um, and I suppose my, my ultimate feeling is that religions are too subtle, complex, interesting, and wise uh, to be simply abandoned to people who just happen to believe in them. Um, they're really for everybody, um, even those of us who have the least natural sympathy for them. Um, and I count myself very much in that camp. Um, I'm going to stop it there, but do come back with questions and thoughts, and let's have a proper conversation. Thanks. Right, we've got lots of time, so I'm going to uh, invite Alan to stay where he is so he can, uh, he can speak freely rather than feel like he's closed up on this table here. Um, now, we'll, should we take questions one at a time? Sure. Yeah? Okay, yeah. Yeah. all right. And we've got microphones, so if you could wait uh, to, uh, for the microphone to arrive before you start asking your question and try to keep it sort of brief, because otherwise we'll be listening to you for too long. Um, we have one here at the front row at the top. No, you have to wait for the microphone to arrive. <coughs> yeah, sorry, I'm not good at listening. Um, could I take you up on your point when you said that you're a lone writer um, and perhaps they don't have the biggest impact on the world that they could? Um, so if you could just perhaps <coughs> give us some hope that these ideas in this room will have some impact outside of it and the best ways that could, could happen. Um, just a couple of things that it, it might be nice to talk about. The purpose of art and how you could link that with, with actually some kind of um, purpose um, in the, or, or meaning in life. Mm. Um, perhaps role models is another one that is sadly lacking today. And um, charity and generosity and, and, and how that might actually um, be affected by the things you've talked about. Thank you very much. Yeah. Um, 
Good, there's a lot there. Um, I think um, my own thinking around this subject came from a sort of personal crisis that um, a few years ago, I wrote a book about architecture, and uh, it was essentially a series of intellectual arguments uh, for better architecture. And what got me suspicious is that everyone agreed. And I was like, oh yes, you know, it's very, you know. And I got invited to lots of, uh, to give lots of lectures to, from civil servants or people in the construction industry, and everyone sort of nodded very politely. And then I remember coming back one night from um, a talk that I'd given in Bristol, and I just thought, what on earth is the point of all this? Um, it's not really going to do anything um, at all. And I became sort of impatient uh, with, with, with the role of argument in change. And, um, and I talked to a friend of mine who's involved in community organizing and started chatting, and he said, well, you know, what you've got to do, if you care about architecture, you know, find some people. You, know, you, you, you start to need to, you need to organize yourself. You, nothing's going to change unless you organize, and that means connections. That means you need to meet people who care in the same way about something you do, and then you need to start putting it together. And Don't think about how big it will be or what it's for. Uh, ultimately, just focus on you know, achieving small-scale goals. Anyway, so I got involved and started doing all sorts of things, and that was a really pivotal moment. And it got me interested in the fact that religions are quite similar to this. They are organizations. Um, and that an organization does not have to necessarily be corrupt. And I'd grown up with this suspicion of, of, of organization. I will be tainted if I join the group. That was sort of my feeling. Um, and I've really moved away from that. Of course there are dangers, etc. Um, so anyway, that's, that's one thing that, uh, that I do. Um, art. Um, what's your question about art? That, well, Alan, the question is really about what's going to happen when we leave this room, because otherwise right. we're just going to have sort of hopeful thoughts in a general way and then yeah. nothing happens with yeah. um, well I'm treading, I'm treading a fine line here um, because even though I've only spoken about this book about three times I've, I've had accusations and they're quite interesting accusations that I'm trying to start a cult um, <laughs> and um, so, <laughs> so I find myself um, sort of divided really some people have read my book and, and sent me emails going um, you know, it's great so uh, where do we go now you know, we start up a website and organise some of this stuff <laughs> And, um, <laughs> and, and, it's, you know, and it's interesting. And, um, and then I got into terrible trouble the other day. Um, some of you may have picked up on this because uh, I was having a discussion, blah, 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 and The Guardian was there, etc. And anyway, I ended up somehow managing to suggest an impression that I was about to uh, build a temple for atheism um, <laughs> in, in London, which is sadly not true, um, or uh, not sadly, but... It was really misinterpreted. I was arguing for the, the need for spaces of contemplation, etc. Anyway, it ended up that I, I was going to worship atheism at, at an altar, <laughs> and I was going to set myself up as a, as a high priest. Um, so this really was a very unfortunate thing, and I've been trying to backpedal uh, ever since. Um, it really isn't what I mean. But um, I suppose, look, the way I see it is I think that we are beyond the age of um, uh, an organization with a central structure in this area. Uh, I don't think the goal is to imitate, for secular people to imitate religions or to start uh, religion. I mean, one of the things I discuss in my book is um, the famous example of Auguste Comte, French sociologist, who did start up this thing called the Religion for Humanity in the 19th century, which is a fascinating experiment. It's sort of interestingly, beautifully crazy. Um, he wanted a new priesthood. He wanted a series of temples. He wanted, uh, uh, he wanted a kind of version of Catholicism without God, really. And anyway, fascinating experiment. I don't think such a thing is 
possible. It's a fascinating experiment. I don't think such a thing is possible. I believe nowadays in self-organization, in, in small interventions into uh, modern life, self-organizing uh, 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 things. And my, my view is that many of the things that I've talked about can be done as projects. You know? um, and so if somebody's interested in the project of how to make the humanities more relevant to uh, you know, contemporary life, um, that's a project. You know, that's not joining a religion. It's a project. It, it's maybe inspired by some of the things that religions have done and by the history of religion. Uh, or if somebody's thinking of you know, starting a, uh, a new way of presenting art, framing works of art, um, so as to uh, 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 let their more instrumental aspects emerge. Again, that's a project. It might be a project for a curator of, of some kind, etc. So I think in a lot of what I'm saying, there should be seeds for stuff that you might want to do um, in whatever area, you know, if you're in the travel industry, look at pilgrimages. Um, fascinating lessons about how to travel uh, in pilgrimages. You know, um, there's, there's, a, there's, a travel, there's a travel agency waiting to be started um, that would have a deep understanding implicitly of pilgrimages, um, a secular one. Um, and, uh, you know, and so on and so forth. Um, so that's really how I uh, look at it. Good, um, good, good. Yeah. Thank, thank you, Alan. Right, lots of hands up. Um, we have one down the front here. Thank you very much. Uh, hi. I was quite impressed from your book, Anxiety. So if you cannot this point to the... You, you talked about the, during your speech, this religion have kind of a constant commitment. So I was thinking about this point, like the nature of human being is just searching, having one to this kind of love from other person or society, everything. So do you think this, you know, sharing this constant commitment is kind of con connected to this, you know, yeah, connected to the eager to have <coughs> this love from other person or society? Well, I think what's interesting about religions in relation to, uh, to love is that um, most of the time in, in the world, um, love is distributed um, according to achievement in worldly matters. Um, uh, you know, my book, Status Anxiety, was about that, about the anxiety that is created from the fact that your position relies on, sorry, that your emotional um, uh, health and sustenance relates to your position in capitalism. And this is deeply uh, anxiety-inducing. Now, one of the things, one of the very... Um, therapeutic things that religions do is they create a space and often a time in the week when you meet people outside of that source of judgment, um, when there's a different kind of judgment. Uh, and so in, in, you know, in the Catholic Mass, the idea is explicitly that you abandon your earthly status when you walk through the door and you, and you, you suddenly look at people through a completely different lens, as God might look at people on the Day of Judgment. In other words, according to a range of spiritual virtues, not um, uh, you know, worldly virtues. Um, you leave the values of Rome behind. You, you know, you enter into a foretaste of the kingdom. Um, fascinating idea. You know, mad in a sense. If you're an atheist, what does that mean? But there's a lot there. Um, you know, it's, it's interesting. My, my book was reviewed by Terry Eagleton, um, not very nicely. Um, but one of the things, one of the reasons why he didn't like it, um, is that he's a Marxist. Uh, and he's a Marxist Catholic, very interesting uh, background to be coming from. And he's uh, not, not the ideal reviewer. Um, and, uh, and, and his argument was basically, this is just a salve for capitalism. Uh, in other words, what he's aiming for is an, over, an overthrow of society. 
Um, and so the idea that on Sunday we would get together and feel a bit better about our economic and status condition um, is anathema to somebody who thinks that the system is fundamentally rotten and must be overthrown. So I can understand, in a sense, if you're a Marxist and you believe that, then that makes absolute sense. Um, but if you're, if you're not convinced by the arguments of Marxism, however much you might like them to be true, if you, if you can't believe that that will be the solution, that is a good solution, um, then you are looking around for things to ease the pressure of contemporary life, and religions definitely have, by creating this space, um, a kind of solution to this, which is intriguing, and which in secular life we struggle to find um, with as much conviction as, as religions deliver it. Thank you. Okay, there's uh, one at the back. We'll come up here again next. What are your thoughts on the Occupy movement? Um, my thoughts are that um, the feelings, I mean, you know, it's not an original thought, but the feelings behind them are legitimate and good and fascinating, but as a thinker, I can't help but be disappointed by the lack of explicit demands, the lack of a crystal definition of what the problem is, and the lack of an aim. Um, and it's, it's a cry of pain and of rage, uh, but... You know, I think the best political movements have allied cries of pain and rage with a program. And because it doesn't have a program, uh, a, a really explicit program, um, it's very vulnerable to cold weather, despair, um, you know, media mockery, etc. Um, you, you know, and uh, yeah, as I say, the, the examples that I like are, are those where somebody's angry but has got a manifesto. You know. Okay. Uh Two questions here. Uh, the one at the front first. Thank you. I, I'd like. Could I take you back, if I may, to your reference to your being accused of forming a uh, beginning a cult? Yeah. Um, listening to your approach seems to be somewhat Wittgensteinian in the sense that Wittgenstein argued that religion was a social practice. It was a way of living. Um, and people criticise that view because it somehow lacks a fundamental grounding. It can, you get a sense of, of a practice floating free of, of uh, some fundamental commitments. Why have you chosen the, the, the phrase religion for atheists? Um, is it simply a social practice or are you, are you trying to ground it in some fundamental principles in some way? Mm. Um, Thank you. <coughs> I don't believe... Um, in the need for a set of doctrines um, uh, by which to live one's life, uh, neither religious nor, nor secular. I don't feel myself the need for um, a, a set of commandments, etc. I feel that um, there are a range of humanistic truths, positions on important topics that are enough. Um, I think that the modern citizen carries within themselves a whole range of um, digested Christianity, psychoanalysis, literature, Shakespeare. You know, it's all there. It's floating in the ether. And I think that is enough, and that's very satisfying. There's a lot to be getting on with. So I don't feel the need to formulate a, a new Bible or a new set of um, uh, uh, you know, action points, because it's all there already. Um, we have enough of it. The, question, the thing is that it's not effective. So that's what interests me, how to render effective a whole range of things um, which seem to me 
common sense. It is common sense. In that sense, you know, it's Wittgensteinian. It is social practice. It's the common sense. How can we make the good part of common sense active in our lives? And I think religions have um, a whole set of suggestions for how to, how to do that. Um, so, you know, I, I, that's why I, 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 I'm not part of um, someone like A.C. Grayling's project, which is to say, you know, here is a book that condenses um, the most important ideas, and um, you know, here we are. I would rather try and lead people to a way of looking at all books um, and a way of using a variety of cultural works um, rather than, as it were, boiling something down to a 500-page tome on explicitly how to live. Uh, Alain, the, the, uh, one of the things that you might, one might think that the religious life is grounded on is not doctrine, but a sense of mystery. Mm. And if you oppose, in, instead of having <coughs> opposition between a, a sort of an orthodoxy and a doctrine against common sense, and think that the contrast might be a sense of mystery and common sense, then your position then looks thin, sort of rather overworldly, mm. and sort of in a, in a large sense, utterly pointless. Mm. So, um, <laughs> yeah. Um, look, my look, my essential view on life is quite bleak. I don't believe. I mean, I am an atheist, and in, in, you know, I don't believe in metaphysical consolation or um, you know answers at the last minute to some of these pressing problems. We're on our own with this stuff. So, um, I, I think um, I think being on our own is a. Very, I mean, I'm not a religious person myself, but being on our own is a very classically Christian situation you know not well our own but someone's coming someone's coming you know you have the moments on the cross <laughs> and that feeling of loneliness but I mean you, you couldn't be a Christian and not you know not expect there is something coming um, and that you know that's the point um, so I don't know um, but the, look the mystery as many people have pointed out mis the sense of mystery or um, is is readily and widely available outside of a religious structure. Um, you know, with that, that, the moon I mentioned about is a good starting point. Um, okay, okay. Actually, there there is a clergyman here. I'm going to try and get him to speak in a minute, but he's not put his hand up yet. <coughs> you, you instead. Uh, is this? Yeah. Um, my question is, or was going to be about values, and I think it's been slightly, perhaps, slightly answered by your answer to the previous question. Uh, in, in religion, <coughs> clearly, it seems that values come from some divine message embodied in a person and often written in a book. Uh, and what my question really is, where, does, where do values for atheists come right. from? Yeah. Yeah. Well, look, I think that question was probably answered um, by uh, uh, Christian thinkers like Aquinas, who um, came up with a rather uh, uh, elegant proposition that when we reason logically, when we are using our powers of reason, we are following God. Now, if you apply that same sort of structure, but, but say that basically when we are reasoning, um, we are arriving at conclusions uh, of widespread validity, perhaps not universal, but widespread validity, um, you, you come at a sort of naturalized ethical uh, kind of position, which is convincing, you know, that's actually probably the way most of us live our lives, um, that we tend to think that our best ideas, our wisest ideas, are widely shared, and indeed they are. So there's a huge... I think we, we live in a world which really privileges 
disagreement intellectually. It suggests that there is fundamentally discord between people and that what a wise a kind of ethical framework has to do is worry a lot about the differences and try to um, constantly emphasize how many there are. Um, but it's possible to imagine another view where we would imagine that on a lot of areas there's agreement. Um, and, you know, I don't think the fundamental problem is that we don't know how to live. The problem is that we know how to live, but we don't do it. That, that's my starting point, right? So th the good ideas are out there. We all know them and we assent to them. We just don't regulate our lives according to them. So that's the challenge. How do we make the good ideas we have effective? Um, and, um, you know, I think a lot of it is about reminding us of what we want anyway. Um, religions create what you might call a moral atmosphere. They create an atmosphere where certain patterns of behavior will seem incongruous and at odds. And, um, you know, Christmas is a classic example of this. You know, at Christmas, the idea is you try to be kind. Christmas, festival of love, family, brotherhood, etc. And uh, uh, so if you're planning to sack somebody or um, shout at someone, you try not to do it around Christmas because um, the idea is that would seem incongruous. Not impossible, and people do. Horrible things happen, but more incongruous. And that's what religions feel themselves in the business of doing, creating role models and suggesting atmospheres where patterns of behavior will not be uh, right. Um, we don't pay any attention to that. We have an idea that the... the the free market in ideas and concepts. We don't regulate space. I mean, think of advertising. Advertising is a sort of classic example of this. But um, you know, the public square is abandoned to the market. Um, and the underlying assumption there is we are resistant to the message. I, I could see a huge billboard that says, you know, eat chocolate, and I'm, it's not going to fundamentally affect my freedom and my, my commitments. Um, religions and, and older traditions, I mean, you find this in classical traditions as well, would say, no, of course, you know, this is, we're incredibly vulnerable to these suggestions, so we've got to get public space right, because if we don't get it right, we'll go wrong as a society. And so, uh, long-winded way of trying to answer your question by saying that the, the real challenge, I believe, is rendering effective things that we already know quite widely. Thank you. All right. Um, there was one over you tweeting. There is a question <laughs> coming. Okay, uh, uh, down here. Thanks very much. Um, Desmond Morris looked at religion from the point of view of a zoologist, and he said, what do all religions <coughs> have in common? And he said, what they have in common is that people gather together, bow their heads, sit quietly, and are humble, forget their rank, and basically try and appease somebody. Um, some great, and he said, This is the behavior you see among chimpanzees and gorillas in my zoo. He was a zoologist at London Zoo. Um, he said, This is um, primates submitting to the alpha male. And he said, There are two sorts of religion. There are God religions where the alpha male is up in heaven, and then there are religions, perhaps like Marxism or Buddhism, where there isn't a God <coughs> in heaven, but there's some single figure who is the alpha male. Mm. Now, I think the problem with creating a religion for atheists is finding the alpha male, excuse me, finding the alpha male that people will mm. submit to mm. in this very sophisticated age where heroes don't last for very long. Yeah. I, yeah again, I should just point out I'm not trying to start a religion for atheists. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm arguing that my title is horribly ambiguous as I'm now painfully beginning to realize. Um, I'm, I'm arguing for those things within religions that might appeal for an atheist, to an atheist, not to start a religion. Um, but to come back to your point about, about the alpha male, etc., um, look, I think there's something 
very socially therapeutic about being made to feel small by something that is not human, not human. If you're made to feel small by another human, that's a problem. You know, you'll get, you, you walk into a posh hotel and you know, the, the, the guy at the door snobby to you and you think, ooh, uh, and you feel small in a horrible way. Um, you know, it's, it's a problem of office life, etc. So no one likes that. But we like to be made to feel small in relation to something huge and non-human. God, or you get it in front of a glacier, or in front of the heavens, um, etc. You, you'd be made, you, and, and really the idea is that everyone is equalized, because the petty differences between humans become nothing, negligible, next to the enormous differences um, between humans and the great natural phenomena. And uh, I think the idea of the divine plays exactly that role. So psychologically, it's deeply therapeutic, and it reduces envy. Um, there's enormous envy in a society where um, essentially you're, you're simply always worshipping man or, or, or other humans. This is a real problem, and I think this is a problem of, of contemporary society, and which explains people's deep interest in nature. You know, the benefits of nature are, are so often framed in, in, in terms of the body, you know, physical exercise, etc. But, of course, they are primarily, I think, um, soul-related. You know, these, are, these are psychological benefits that occur from uh, the vastness of nature, or indeed animals, uh, or small children, who are in many ways like animals. These people don't care about our status. Um, they're operating on a completely different um, thing, which is why it's so deeply relaxing to spend time um, with mountains or, or small children. Um, <laughs> or both. Um, well, there's quite a lot of tweets going on, I can tell you. <laughs> I'll tell you about some in a minute. Okay, question over here. Hey, thanks. My name is uh, Nimrod. It's a biblical name. I grew up in Israel. I'm a writer. And I have been following a guy on Twitter called Alain de Butano with 169,000 followers. I have 7,000 followers. And despite your amazing amount of followers, you were never verified by Twitter. I mean, it's 169,000 followers. You never verify. How do you know it's really you tweeting? Yeah. And what's the point of having followers <coughs> if, if not for your temple? <laughs> I'm, I'm beginning to feel that other people uh, want to have a, a cult more than I do. Um, point they're, they're welcome to have one. Um, I tried to get my account verified and just couldn't work it out. Um, I didn't know how. I think when I looked, they'd sort of stopped verifying accounts, so I don't know how to. But I guess my, my point is, does it matter who it is? I mean, it's like, it's like saying, you know, is Anna Karenina real or not? It, does, it doesn't really matter. I mean, we don't need people to be real as such um, when all you want from them is to read some words or to engage with them as um, you know, literary personalities. So, so but, could but, be but that said, it is me. Because um, oh, I don't think anyone would waste that much time otherwise. Um, but, <laughs> Could you tweet something now? Then we're sure. <laughs> yes, I'll, I'll do it from, yeah, I'll do it. Yeah. One can never tell. <laughs> Thank you. And the point of followers. Thank you. <laughs> okay. Yes, woman here. Just here. No. In, in. Um, my question is about education and charity. Um, if you go to rural villages in developing countries, there are a lot of um, Christian missionaries or faith-based organizations setting up schools in rural areas and providing education for children. But by providing education, they're not only contributing to human development, but they're also trying to preach them and convert them into Christianity, per se. And for me, that's kind of mind-boggling. Um, there are things to learn from religion f about education, but <coughs> many of times they kind of fuse that with preaching and trying to convert people. So how do you feel about that? Um, look, I, I admire their energy in a task that is clearly very important if you want to have an impact in the world. So if you want to have an impact in the world, you can't just sit in London and um, you know, hope to change stuff. You've got to get out there to village schools and 
teach uh, people. You know, think of the Jesuits. The Jesuits contemplated Europe um, and thought, right, how are we going to reform Europe? And they thought, right, what we're going to do, sort of consider the problem, thought, we're going to put a, a tutor into every aristocratic family in Europe, and the tutor will teach the kids and then have dinner with the parents, uh, and that way we'll be everywhere. And they were. They, that's how they managed to dominate the imaginations of, of Europe. Now, you may not agree with that. I don't agree with that. But you have to think that, right, if you've got a belief system, that's probably what you're going to need to do. So if you don't agree with that system, let's say you believe not in, you know, teaching people about the kingdom of Christ um, and the need for, you know, obedience to certain laws, um, you will need to get out there in village schools and, and start to teach them about free thought and women's rights and, um, uh, you know, the, the possibilities of expanding your mind outside of certain kinds of ideology, etc. That will need to be done. That work will need to be done. Um, so I guess my, my response is, why is it only those guys who are out there doing, you know, the teaching? Um, and... Um, uh, again, it's about organisation. We need to organise as effectively as they are, but we probably won't be able to organise properly until we first really study what they're up to um, and, and how they do it and how amazingly effective they've been. So I think this is the position of the atheist. The position of the atheist tends to be to despair from a position of, oh, they're doing, those, they're doing all that stuff, uh, rather than going, it's because they're doing all that stuff that we need to find out what that stuff is um, and uh, take an appropriate response, rather than you know, fulminate from, from London, from a pulpit. Um, yeah. Okay, yeah, one here. I think you've had your hand up from the beginning. Um, one thing I don't think you mentioned was um, one of the things that religion does quite well, or is quite attractive to people, mm. is uh, consistency. Uh, so, you know, God never changes and sort of... Uh, no matter what we do, we know where we are in relation to God. Is there anything in modern secular society that you would say is sort of similar to that? Well, there are definitely um, times when we feel in touch with ideas, truths, emotions that feel more stable than others. Um, the capacity to do that is very much undermined by what you might call the news agenda and all the technology that goes around that, including Twitter, um, which suggests that the new is, is where it's at, really. I mean, you're right, religions are cyclical, and they, they just go round and round things. Nothing, nothing of importance has happened since you know, the ascension. Um, and, uh, uh, and that has a certain amount of reassurance, because we live in time, and we're rather traumatized by time. Um, and uh, so I think, for me, the capacity to get regularly in touch with feelings, dispositions, etc., that have not been radically altered by something in the last 24 hours is, is important, but, but very, uh, very fragile. We have to make conscious effort. I mean, I think we're, we're on to a real and sincere problem. So I'm really interested in this problem. Um, I don't necessarily have all the answers, but I'm fascinated. I think religions have got one version of an answer, and I think we probably, in our own lives, need to work out some kind of answer, because otherwise it could drive us crazy. Um, yeah. Uh, the uh, reference to whether you're verified on Twitter has just appeared on Twitter. <laughs> um, yeah. Um, I personally majored in aesthetics during my degree years, and I was really interested in part where you explain about the art usefulness for religion. But um, I wonder if non-believers and agnostic could have, in terms of the psychological value and quality, have the same level of extra ethnic experience. Mm. 
Um, well, I don't know exactly, but um, don't you just downplay the role of belief in ethnic experience? Um, to what extent do you think belief can play a role? Look, I don't know the role of belief because I'm an atheist, and I've always been so. So it's very hard. You know, people say to me things like, look, um, you know, listening to a Bach cantata as a non-believer, you're not, it's not doing anything. It can't because you're not a believer. And I can't understand that argument because I'm, by definition, outside that argument. I cannot, you know, I can't verify it. All I can say is that it's doing something, and it's quite, you know, it's better than most things. So that's my starting point. My starting point is I don't know what the full-strength version is, but there's a half-strength version, which is pretty interesting as well. Um, and, and, of course, a believer can always turn around and say, you're not getting it. But I think, at the end of the day, there's a certain amount of sadism in that, because how, how can the non-believer respond, other than to say, of course, but I'm a non-believer. So, anyway, um, as, for, as for what I'm arguing that art should do, um, look, I think most great works of art are anyway didactic, are anyway instrumental, but we're not encouraged to see them that way. You know, um, think of museum captions, classic, modern example. A museum caption guides you towards the, 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 the birth date, the death date, um, the certain technical features of, of a painting. Very rarely is there a nudge it, towards something else. You know, there's a lovely quote I came across in uh, Rothko. Rothko was asked what his work was about, and he said that his work which should provide a moment of communion um, where the darkness of life could be shared uh, among people. And I remember reading this thinking, goodness, so that's what he, the artist, thought his work was about. And what I loved about it was it was so simple. It's like, of course, oh, that's what Rothko's about. But I remember encountering Rothko when I was sort of 16, 17, and just not knowing what I should do, and not knowing, being very uh, tortured by what my response could be. Um, and I wish that that had been on the wall you know, very simple. It's very simple, and I think artists do it anyway. But we're not encouraged to view works of art like that by the way that museum culture hangs them, frames them, etc. Okay, there's somebody up here who's been waiting a long time. Uh, which one was it? Yeah. No. <coughs> no. 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 There's a, a lady down here who. It's pressure now for a good question. Yeah. <laughs> um, I'm an atheist. It's starting to feel like a confessional. Um, <laughs> ironically. And I like seeing Christmas carols, and I like going to church to sing Christmas carols. Am I doing something wrong? I mean, not for Christianity, but for the cause of atheism and atheists. Well, it's interesting that you say that, because some atheists would say, yes, you are. I mean, literally, it's, look, it struck me. I've learned so much in the last week, um, some of it good, some of it more challenging. And, but there's literally consistent, a constituency of people. I've been getting emails from people who say, you are betraying everything we've tried to achieve. And I've sort of engaged with these emails, and go, what, what have you tried to achieve? And they will say, people like Christopher Hitchens and Richard Dawkins have tried to free us and create a, a, a brand of atheism which is pure and clean and totally divorced from religion. I didn't know that was necessarily what... Anyway, that's how they've interpreted what they're up to. Um, and they believe that engagement with Christmas carols, etc., is um, very dangerous and, uh, and very suspect as an activity. Uh, and... Uh, <laughs> I don't know. I mean, I, I just coming from a different place. Like you, I don't think so at all. Um, but look, it could be explained. You know, people have different backgrounds, etc. Um, if you'd freed yourself from a very oppressive family background or social background where religion had really limited your freedom and your choices, etc., um, I think you couldn't you couldn't with much levity go and hang out at a Christmas 
uh, carol surface. You know, it might just be not very, not very funny, you know, not something that you could... Uh, and I often thought, you know, if I was a woman in Saudi Arabia, I couldn't have written this book um, in the sense, well, from many points of view, but in the sense that I couldn't have... Um, I couldn't have felt as generous as I do at times towards religions uh, because I would have had first-hand experience of their really challenging sides. So um, I, I think, in a way, this is a fruit of a society which has been very good to, uh, to people like myself who don't believe. It's been you know, for all kinds of political and, reason, you know, and all kinds of efforts of very courageous people over the last 200 years. It has led to a quality of life where um, an atheist can have a happy time at a Christmas carol service. So as so long as we remember that so it took quite a long time to get to that point, but maybe we can, we, maybe we are at that point. Yeah. Alan, there's a, a question from somebody on Twitter called Caroline, who may or may not be a woman, because it's not verified, <laughs> but she asked what's sacred, what do you think is sacred in an atheist reality? Look, I mean, I interpret the word sacred through atheist lens, and I simply think, um, you know, it's, it's a word for trying to separate something um, from something else that's more negative in some way. It's a way of trying to signal the importance of something. I can't, I can't write sacred with a capital S. I simply don't believe in the divine origin of uh, something sacred. So that's the answer to Caroline, if she's listening somehow through Twitter. <laughs> there, yeah. Thank, thank you. Uh, I like your premise, but um, I, I'm struggling to understand how to um, achieve it. Um, uh, and how practical it is. You seem to assume that um, we can access uh, the humanities and, and uh, apply it to our lives. Um, I think that's more easily feasible <coughs> with the religion when it's all condensed for you already. Sure. Um, you're right that um, the humanities is not necessarily well presented. And as I say, if you showed up at LSE and said, uh, you know, um, where's the material through which I can find guidance and consolation, you know, morality, whatever, um, you would be struggling. Um, but it's there. Um, look, I'm trying hard to, to do that work. I wrote a book called How Proust Can Change Your Life a few years ago, many years ago. Um, that was sort of an attempt. And there are many people. There are many people nowadays who are in that space. You know, if I think of um, someone like the philosopher John Armstrong or Theodore Zeldin, um, or to uh, some extent Simon Critchley, etc. People who, people who are uh, very interested in approaching the humanities with intent and are interested in um, presenting a material um, in, in ways that, that owe things to religions, I think. Um, and uh, I think we're getting better at that. I think the university system is quite unhelpful to that ambition, really unhelpful. Um, and that's a great source of regret. I, when I was an undergraduate, I fervently hoped that that's what university could be about. Uh, and that's why I went to study uh, the humanities at university and was really very disappointed. Um, and I don't think I've ever quite recovered from that disappointment. And um, a lot of what I'm trying to do is to sort of make good something that didn't quite work out for me. Um, so, yeah, I think it's beginning. Um, yeah, it's beginning. Good, good. Out of the back there. Hi. Um, I think part of your idea is that, um, you, or you have this idea that um, there were beliefs from which practices are, like uh, <coughs> originated. And um, you run into problems with a lot of your critics who say, well, um, you can't really just divorce those practices from those beliefs because those practices flow from, from the belief. 
which I think is a little bit unfair. So this might help you in kind of rebutting this argument in the future, that <laughs> to kind of say a lot of these practices were um, existed a lot like, before these beliefs. Certainly. So you're kind of, Certainly. for atheists, we're kind of taking back what was already exactly. ours. Like, exactly. Uh, originally. So Bach would have been just as a beautiful mu musician where if he wrote an oratorio for, for, for the universe. So that's just the kind yeah. of point that, you know, uh, you know, you could make, I think. I agree. I think there are so many practices which seem nowadays quite religious. I mean, you know, I was fascinated to read about the history of Epicureanism, you know, the Epicurean philosophy. Um, they, uh, the Epicureans lived in what we would now call monasteries. Um, they were essentially um, uh, group of, groups of friends um, with a shared commitment to a certain kind of intellectual, spiritual life, li living a relatively simple life outside the city, etc. Um, and Christianity came along and appropriated it, appropriated that system, stamped out Epicureanism um, quite violently across uh, uh, the Western uh, uh, world and, um, and set up monasticism, which directly rose from it. Nowadays, if you suggest to somebody, look, I'm going to set up with a group of friends, we're going to cut our hair short, we're going to grow vegetables, you know, everyone will go, well, that's quite monastic of you. You're going to, you guys are going to become monks. And you want to go, no, 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 we're becoming Epicureans. But everyone's forgotten about the Epicureans. Um, so, and, and I mean, this is one example among many, many, as you suggest. So many things which seem to us indelibly Christian in the West um, have origins far uh, you know, not just Christmas and other things, you know, which, which have paganism underneath them. So there are many, many things to be reappropriated, and I think there's a kind of, there's a richness of practice uh, in, um, which you find in, in classical life, which has been really forgotten. A lot of this stuff was, was around in, in, uh, in the classical world, shorn of pagan sentiments or, or pagan practices. They were often philosophical practices. Um, I, I wonder if I could tempt you to ask the question. Yeah, we'll have to wait for the <laughs> mic. No pressure or anything, but this man is of the cloth. <coughs> right down the front here. It, it's coming. <laughs> it's not working, then. <laughs> <laughs> No. Another one's coming. <laughs> Second coming. Uh, for the privileged position, I, th I thank you. Um, I'm Christian. I'm Church of England priest. I work as a university chaplain. And some of the most interesting conversations that I have with students seem to be um, about how to live with people whose views are radically different from one's own. And it, it seems to me that both the people from different world religions who can do that well and the secular students who can do that well are those who are, who are somehow willing to risk getting outside their own tribe. Um, I can understand the, the sources for the religious people. They're, they're, they're going back into their tradition and finding the things that allow them to be bridge builders rather than uh, tribalists or persecutors. And the, the history from the religious side can be pretty awful. Can you just comment on what you think the sources might be that allow people from your tradition, from the humanist, from the materialist side, that will really help them move across difference? Where, I mean, it sounds very easy to do, but actually there are very, very few people, both religious and non-religious, who can sit comfortably, as you're almost trying to pattern today. You know, mm. so, so what's your source? Where, what helps you to stay in a place of discomfort? 
mm. with people I, whose views are different. <coughs> I think thank the you. Um, thank you very much. Thank you. I think the the model is probably pluralistic society as it was defined by political thinkers in the 18th century. The idea that you could create a society where belief, um, where you didn't need complete agreement on belief, and yet you could have a union of citizens sharing a space. Because previous to that, there had been this assumption that a society could only work if it had religious unity. And then, of course, you get to religious wars. If you, if you need religious unity, and then you have divergence of religions, you will then get to religious wars. So in the 18th century, there comes this idea, 17th century among some as well, th th this idea that the only functioning society is going to be one which can accommodate religious difference and, and, and unite citizens um, according to things other than religion, citizenship, um, belonging to the polis. Um, I think that's a very beautiful idea, very enduring idea. Um, always vulnerable to corruptions, but really, really what that's saying is um, you can afford to sit down at table with somebody, some of whose views you, you really won't agree with, but you don't need to push agreement all the way. That, that part of um, being humane and human is not to force agreement in all areas, because if, you, if you're looking for complete agreement, you will get dissension um, and dissent and, and, and argument. Um, and that it's not really shying away, it's actually a, a kind of accept, a sceptical acceptance of the fact we're not all going to agree on the biggest questions, but still need to eat together. Um, and I think that's where I understand the tradition of, of Christian hospitality towards the stranger, that when the Christian welcomes the stranger, the Christian's not necessarily looking for complete agreement with that stranger. Um, uh, there doesn't, you don't need to force that person into, in, in, into agreement. And I think that's what slightly disturbs me about the kind of Dawkins approach. Um, what I think many sort of good British folk feel when they see Dawkins in action is um, maybe this is completely right. I'm sure this is all completely right, but it seems a bit mean. It seems a bit, um, it seems in some ways to be undermining something that practically we all need all the time, which is to get on with people with whom we don't fully agree. Uh, and and, and if, we, if we have to try and agree with them on everything, um, we'll end up in, in a massive conflict, and that seems very dangerous. Thank you, Alan. Now, um, run out of time, and I've got two things I've got to say. The first is another uh, of Alan's tweets, which I was saving up for you. This one says, <laughs> profit is the reward for correctly understanding an aspect of reality ahead of your peers. Now, with that in view, I can remind you <laughs> that there will be a book signing here <laughs> in a moment, and that you can purchase <coughs> a copy of Alan's book outside in the foyer and bring it back here and he'll sign it. So, but for now, let's thank Alan. Thank you.